Would you stand with me as we read from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. Jesus says again, Again, you have heard it was said to those who lived long ago, don't make a solemn pledge, but you should follow through on what you have pledged to the Lord. But I say to you that you must not pledge at all. You must not pledge by heaven because it's God's throne. You must not pledge by earth because it's God's footstool. You must not pledge by Jerusalem because it's the city of the great king. And you must not pledge by your head because you can't turn one hair black or white. Let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Thank you, Ruth. I don't know what to do about my fancy face mic here. It's, it's, it's uh, yeah, super high tech. I'm <laughs> so I apologize if I, you know, fidget. I hope I don't. But good morning, friends. I'm Pastor Melanie, and I'm really excited to get to invite you into the study and application of this rather strange passage from Matthew chapter 5. So we've been journeying through the the Sermon on the Mount these past few weeks, this epic sermon that Jesus delivered overlooking the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Side note, I tell this to Kevin every week, and he's like, yeah, you told me that last week. (laughs) The background of this image is actually from a modern-day picture of the Sea of Galilee, so it's not just a random body of water. Um, It's specific, which is, I think, cool. So the importance of these three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, they can't be emphasized enough. But why is that? Well, the Sermon on the Mount is, is a twofold sermon. It's, it's emphasizing the ethic of the kingdom of heaven that is to come. So this eternal life, this is what it will be like one day. But it's not just about the future. It's about right now. It's inviting us as Jesus' followers to live out this ethic here on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we mean when we talk about the kingdom of heaven here and now. So this morning, we're going to take a look into what it means to be truth-tellers, what Jesus says about truth-telling. So let's revisit this text briefly before we dive in. Uh, Verse 33 of Matthew Chapter 5. Again, you have heard it said that those who lived long ago don't make a false solemn pledge, but you should follow through on what you have pledged to the Lord. But I say to you that you must not pledge at all. You must not pledge by heaven because it is God's throne. You must not pledge by earth because it is God's footstool. You must not pledge by Jerusalem because it's the city of the great king. And you must not pledge by your head because you can't turn one hair black or white, try as we might. (laughs) Let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Anything more than that comes from the evil one. So I have to be honest to you, friends. Uh, No pun intended about the honest thing. Just just talking straight. I kind of skip over this passage most of the time. I feel like it doesn't have much to do with me. I'm not really an oath taker. I I don't really feel like it has a lot of bearing on how I ought to be living my life, uh, my everyday life. Now, I realize oaths or solemn pledges, they don't really seem to be something we do on a regular basis, but then as I thought about it, I'm like, oh, well, maybe this does apply to me because 
I took baptismal vows. When I was 10 years old, I was baptized in my church camp pond, not much unlike Somerset's lake. I can almost feel the algae squishing between my toes. <laughs> I, I think about my, my wedding day, the day that Kevin and I exchanged solemn vows to one another 13 years ago. And, and then I think, oh right, I took ordination vows a few years ago. I vowed to take authority to minister the word of God to faithfully proclaim his word, declare his forgiveness, celebrate the sacraments, shepherd his people. Maybe you've vowed an oath in your day, weddings or baptisms. Some professions come with the weight of an oath. I think of doctors and nurses, lawyers. Maybe you were sworn in in high school as a member of the National Honor Society. Uh, Kevin decided he didn't want to be a part of the National Honor Society and avoided that oath, but I took that pledge. Uh, maybe you've been sworn in as a juror at, in a court case. So maybe these oath things are a little bit more applicable than I realized, but is Jesus really talking about oaths? Is he really asking us to never pledge our allegiance to anything or anyone ever again? What's the big deal about oaths. I'd like to suggest that the oath is not the point here in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus is calling us to something higher than the oath. Jesus is calling his followers not to be law-abiding citizens, but to have a deep heart change. You see, this is the very same thing we've been learning these past few weeks as we've explored the Sermon on the Mount a couple of weeks ago, Matthew 5, 21 through 26, Jesus wasn't just advocating that we not murder. That seems like base-level, good human being-level living, you know? He's advocating that we, that we not hold the kind of anger in our hearts that turns to contempt, that turns to hatred. He's calling us to more. Last week in Matthew 5, 26 to 30, Jesus doesn't just stop at, don't commit adultery. Hey, cheating on your spouse is not a good thing. That's like another base level humanity goodness thing. Jesus in his kingdom, he's asking us to have deep inner purity, right motivations, freedom from even lustful thoughts. And now in this section of Matthew 5, Jesus doesn't just stop at saying, hey, if you take an oath, you shouldn't lie. That's kind of the opposite of an oath. He is insisting on absolute truthfulness. Jesus is insisting on absolute truthfulness because in the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom he's building, oaths are unnecessary. They're completely superfluous. Why? Because followers of Jesus are truth-tellers. Right? We follow through on what we say we're going to do. We don't exaggerate the truth. We don't rationalize our way out of difficult situations, right? When we say yes, we really mean yes, and when we say no, we really mean no. Sounds simple enough. But if we're being honest, there's that truth-telling thing again. <laughs> Half-truths can invade every corner of our lives. We make up false narratives in our heads about what people really think of us. What must they really be saying? 
Those are half-truths. We tell little white lies, a fib here or there, to avoid the awkward conversation or a full explanation. I was just telling Tommy this morning how I've caught myself in doing this very thing, where someone will give me an article and say, hey, I'd love for you to read this. And I'm like, great, I'd love to read that too. And then next week I see the person again, they say, did you get a chance to read the article? And I'm thinking, well, I read the title. I can, kind of, I can kind of surmise what the whole thing is about. So, And I don't think through all that cognitively. I don't think, I'm going to lie to this person because I'm a good person. I don't lie. But I say, oh, it was so great that, you know, I just start talking about the article as if I, I didn't answer their question. I should have just said, no, I didn't get a chance to read it, but I love to talk to you about it. Or, but that makes me feel like I look bad. That's why I don't tell the truth. So we tell those kind of half-truths. Maybe you've even fudged a number here or there on a tax return. Uh, And of course, we've been lied to on a regular basis, sometimes extreme lies that have changed relationships forever, sometimes small fibs. And it's not just the people in our lives who lie to us. We know the news spins reports to suit their agenda. We know that politicians twist their words in order to convince their constituents that they deserve to be in power. We we know, cognitively at least, that advertisers are lying to us, convincing us that we need their product in order to live the life we've always wanted. In fact, just the other day, I was, I was thinking about this video. Dear Flintstock Kids, 10 million strong and growing. It's a big world, and no one helps kids grow into it strong and healthy better than Flintstones, with all the vitamins kids need. Dear Flintstones Kids, 10 million strong and growing. Dear Flintstones Kids, 10 million strong. Flintstones, preferred by more moms than any other children's vitamin. I always wanted to be that little girl at the end. (laughs) Um, Maybe some of you are singing along to that in your head. Maybe some of you remember that. And some of you are thinking, what in the world? How old is this person? I thought she was young. Um, So that video, I was singing it the other day because I was giving my kids some vitamins that Francis gave me, actually. And um, they were saying something, why do we take vitamins? And I said, to make you strong and growing. And they're like, what? And I thought, wow, you know, 30 years ago, that song got stuck in my head and I can still sing it. So that's impressive marketing right there. But also, I mean, it seems kind of, uh, kind of truthful. I mean, vitamins are good for us. But also, like, there's a whole bunch of kids who are probably growing strong without taking Flintstones vitamins. It's not the only way to be strong and healthy, right? So they're, they're stretching the truth. And then there's this impressive video by the the editors, the marketing editors for Verbo. Let's listen to this one. This is the canoe that a young couple will get gloriously lost in together. This is the checkers game where grandson and granddad will bond. These are the woods where a daughter will tell a mother she's nervous about starting a new school. This is the pool where cannonball records will be broken. This is where new parents will remember life before becoming new parents. And this is the kitchen where the new boyfriend will unofficially become family. 
These are the Verbo vacation homes waiting for you to fill with your family. Your together awaits. Find it with Verbo. Isn't that good? Wow, I am like so impressed with advertisers. I get drawn into that. I'm like, oh, it looks so lovely. I just want to be a part of that. I think it draws us into that. We want those experiences. We want the pristine getaway with our kids, jumping into pools and never fighting, and this beautiful family dinner where no one is fighting. And, um, you know, a, 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 an idyllic time. But if you've ever gone on vacation with your family, have you had that perfect experience the whole time? Everyone's laughing right now because I'm pretty sure the answer is no. I mean, if your family doesn't, I want to talk to you after church so that I can come on vacation with your family. <laughs> but these advertisers are good. They convince us that we need them to have that kind of life. And these are just innocuous examples. They're not really harming us. They're not overtly harming us, but they're inviting us to believe that half-truths are okay. That we don't really need to speak the whole truth, so help me God, unless we're taking an oath. But that's exactly what Jesus is naming for us here in Matthew. He's calling out the ways we justify ourselves. We, we're smart. We can rationalize our way out of anything. So let's start back at the very beginning, the original, the OG spin room, okay? The Garden of Eden. You probably know the story. So Adam and Eve are surrounded by unfathomable beauty. They befriend the animals. They enjoy delicious fruits and veggies. And God walks with them in the garden. How dumb could they be to disobey? <laughs> but they, along with the deceiver, convince themselves that God is holding out on them. They, they tell the story in their heads that God is holding out, and so they say, God told us we shouldn't eat from this tree, but I think God is fibbing to me. He's telling a lie. So they lie to themselves, and you know how the rest of the story goes. Here we are. <laughs> Adele Calhoun says, the rest of the Bible is the story of how God mends the terror in the fabric of creation, which began with a lie about reality. The rest of the Bible is the story of how God mends the terror of the fabric of creation, which began with a lie about reality. So that's what Jesus is trying to mend here in Matthew 5. This is where we talk about the kingdom of heaven, and I'm guessing a lot of times when pastors say the kingdom of heaven, we're just like, what? <laughs> what is the kingdom of heaven? How does that have anything to do with what I did yesterday, weeding my garden and getting takeout? What does the kingdom of heaven have to do with my actual life right now? And it does seem a little bit ethereal, a little bit far off, and even fluffy or mystical, like, okay, that's nice, but you pastors must understand something that I don't. What was Jesus talking about? But the thing of it is, the kingdom of heaven comes with every truth we speak. With every word we speak that is made in truth, we bring the kingdom of heaven here on earth. So Jesus' kingdom comes when his followers' words can be trusted without qualification. That's what Jesus is getting at here. When you and I can be trusted 
to say and do what we said we are going to say and what we say we're going to do without qualification, without needing to take an oath, that's the kingdom of heaven breaking through. Donald Wagner says it this way, while, advocating, while others advocated for total honesty, Jesus demands it and insists that honesty needs nothing to prop it up. Disciples are to speak the truth as a matter of course because they are inwardly pure in heart, not because it has been imposed by some external necessity. So when Jesus says, you must not take a pledge at all, let your yes mean yes and your no mean no, he isn't creating an extra set of laws against oaths. Remember, oaths aren't the point. In Jesus' kingdoms, in Jesus' kingdom, oaths are unnecessary and redundant. They're unnecessary and redundant. As Jesus' followers, we get to be a part of bringing his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven by telling the truth, by being truth-tellers, by exposing lies and half-truths, by letting love form our thoughts and our internal monologues. Because when we know we're loved by God, We don't need to justify ourselves. We can be honest when we make a mistake. We know that God deeply loves us. We can let go of blame and rationalizing. And I am really good at blame and rationalizing. I won't ask my husband to give you examples. (laughs) But instead of relying on these coping mechanisms, that we're afraid we're not going to be loved unless we convince somebody that we're better than we are, instead of exaggerating our good sides and compensating for the unfavorable parts of ourselves, we can rely on God's love. We can practice frequent confession when we fall short of truth-telling. What if apologies weren't so awkward? What if going up to someone and saying, I was wrong, or I'm sorry, or I didn't tell you the truth the other day, didn't feel totally uncomfortable. What if it was just as common as asking, how was your day? How are you doing today? That's the type of culture that deeply formed Jesus followers live into, where that's what we do. People aren't surprised when we confess and apologize. Friends, Jesus is inviting us to be deeply formed followers, to live out truth. He doesn't want to build up this followership of people, a huge number of people who toe the line and follow the rules to a T. I mean, he was surrounded by Pharisees anyways. I mean, they were the best rule followers of all time. He didn't need more rule followers. Now, maybe I'm talking to some folks who are rule-abiding types. I know there's many of you out there. I, I grew up wanting to do the right thing, And it's not a bad thing to follow the rules, of course. But following the rules doesn't demonstrate the kind of person you are deep down. Following the rules just tells you or tells us that you're really good at reading directions and you're really good at demanding perfection of yourself. And this is what I was trapped in for most of my life. I I wanted to do the right thing because I didn't want to get in trouble and I wanted to make my mom or dad or my teachers proud of me. I, wanted, I didn't want to disappoint. And that's how I viewed God, too. 
But Jesus is trying to get at our motivations, why we're doing what we're doing. Jesus is inviting us to go beyond simply following instructions. That's what Paul was talking about with, you, you, you want milk, not solid food. You're, you're still an infant in the faith. So if you're wanting to just follow the rules, okay, God, tell me what's right and what's wrong, then we're still living on milk. And we want solid food. We want a solid faith that goes deeper and deeper than that. We want a kingdom not built on instruction following and rule adherence because that's built on fear. 1 John 3, 16, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment. Love is is the opposite of fear. And this, this is how the deceiver, the evil one, traps us. He gets us thinking, what if I mess up? What's the consequence? What if someone finds out? I should just keep this to myself. The evil one invites us into darkness, into a dark kingdom of have-tos, I have to do this, or shoulds, I should do the right thing, or I should do the wrong thing, I should, I should, I should. Jesus' kingdom isn't about that. He's not about that. He's about love and light not fear and darkness. Now listen to this example, this encounter Jesus had in John chapter 8 with a large gathering of Pharisees and onlookers. This is right after Jesus convinced them to drop their stones from stoning a woman who was caught in adultery. He said, you who are without sin, cast the first stone. And so they all dropped it and walked away. So tuning in, John chapter 8, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves to anyone. How can you say that we will be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from my father, from your father. And they say, Abraham is our father. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, Then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I've heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. And Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Why are you not able to hear what I say? You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me? Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. 
The reason you do not hear is you do not belong to God. So Jesus says, the truth will set us free. The truth will set us free. But just like the Pharisees, they couldn't understand. Free from what? We are free people. What are you talking about? We've never been held captive. But the kind of captivity Jesus is talking about is an inner slavery. It's a heads down, shoulders slumped, no eye contact, walking on eggshells, don't mess up kind of slavery. It's based on fear. And we're trapped in half-truths and adhering to a long and impossible list of rules. We're feeling coerced into acting a certain way. We are enslaved to our fear and to sin. There's no freedom like that in the kingdom of Jesus. There's only love. There's only freedom. So to be part of Jesus' kingdom, we need to live in truth because as Jesus said, the truth will set you free. We get to live out the truth of who we really are. We get to apologize when we've done wrong. Like I said, what if we became the type of people, what if our church, what if Ipsy Free was known for the, way, how, the frequency with which people apologize and confess to one another? I'm sorry. I'm sorry, that was not kind. We're going to mess up. We have emotions, we, we, get, we make mistakes. We're not asking you to be Ipsy Free, the perfect church. We're asking you to confess your sins because God is faithful and just. God is loving. So we get to encounter and extend the forgiveness again and again. It means if someone comes to you and says, I'm sorry I messed up, we don't hold it against them. We embrace and welcome them back like the father of that prodigal son. So we know in theory that the kingdom of Jesus is built on truth, not lies, on love, not fear. But what does that look like in our real life? You see, Jesus' kingdom is all about invitation, not manipulation. Jesus is inviting us into a life that's being formed by the love of God. And here's the thing. If we choose to follow Jesus, we talk about becoming like him, but we're, we don't become like him unless we spend time with him. We spend time with Jesus in prayer and in scripture in every mundane moment of our lives. Following Jesus, it's a metaphor for how closely we are to be with him. Literally following in his footsteps like his disciples did, breathing the same air sleeping in the same house, walking the same roads, eating the same food. It's spending this much time. Can you imagine how many little arguments those disciples must have gotten into? If you're spending that much time with people, you're not having the verbal vacation. <laughs> you're getting into it. But you spend that much time with people, you begin to sound like them. You begin to act like them. You have mannerisms like them. In spending so much time with him, his character rubs off on us. We begin to live freely and lightly, no longer fearful of our mistakes, but eager to do what Jesus does. So hear this, hear this part. Becoming like Jesus doesn't happen 
by sheer willpower. Becoming like Jesus doesn't even happen by following the rules. Becoming like Jesus happens with time spent together. It happens over time, slowly and subtly, almost imperceptible, like like a plant pressing through the hard earth or a child growing. When you're with them every day, you don't notice it, but then if you're away for a few weeks, you realize, wow, you've grown a ton. That's how we grow when we spend time with Jesus. So don't get discouraged if you feel like you're not changing fast enough. The people around you will notice. The people around you will notice how you're being deeply formed. That's the kind of Jesus follower we want to be. Formed by the sheer amount of time we spend with him. Because then we begin to love others without obligation, without condition. We begin to serve others without expectation. We begin to share generously what we've been given and we're not afraid there's not going to be enough for us. Because that's so often why we don't share what we have because what if, what if I don't have enough? This is the kind of life that Jesus calls us to live. This is the good news. And this is what, when we talk about evangelism, it's not about going and saying, if you were to die today, where would you go? It's about living a life that is contagious by the way that you live. It's so radically different than the ways of this world, the ways of Flintstone commercials and Verbo commercials and, and politicians. It's the way of truth-telling. Evangelism isn't about getting other people to follow our rules. Okay, Jesus said do it this way, and you're not doing it that way. You know all the regular, you know drinking is wrong, homosexuality is wrong, have, sleeping with your spouse or sleeping outside with uh, somebody before that your spouse is wrong. You know, we judge people based on these things, but the kingdom ethic doesn't apply to people who are not in the kingdom. We don't get to judge them. We get to live out the love of Jesus and live into the, the higher calling that he's calling us to that is going to become this this, it's like the scent of chocolate chip cookies that just invites you in. It, this enticing sort of love. This enticing sort of life that you can't avoid. Why are you so different? Why do you apologize to me? Because I love Jesus and he loves me. Do you want to love Jesus? Do you want to know the love of Jesus? The truth sets you free. We don't want to manipulate or dominate people. We want to invite them in. And yeah, truth-telling is totally countercultural. It goes against everything we've said or heard. It goes against our self-preservation instincts. We want to keep ourselves looking good and feeling good and appearing good. But Jesus says the truth sets us free. So now what? What are our next steps? How do we become these truth-tellers that Jesus wants us to be? Well, we've already said it's, more, it's about more than willpower. We can't just, today I am a truth-teller. You know it's about more than that. It's about spending time with Jesus. 
So if you have your handout, I want to invite you to pull it out or pull out your journal and fill in this blank. This week, I want to be deeply formed by Jesus by spending time fill in the blank with him. Get really specific here. Maybe you're spending time in silence with him. Maybe you're spending time reading with scripture with him. Maybe you're going to spend some time talking about your life with God with him. Maybe you're going to spend some time walking with him. Maybe while you're cooking dinner this week, you're going to pray and invite Jesus into that space. So I'm going to pause for a minute. I want you to ask Jesus, how do you want me to spend time with you this week? And then let's take this next super practical step. This week, I will take stock of my words. Here's the blanks. Do I exaggerate? Rationalize? Fib? Fail to follow through? I just want you to pay attention to yourself, to your habits. Awareness is one of the hardest steps It really is. It's really embarrassing to realize how untrue so much of what you do is. It's really hard. But it's the most important step to becoming a deeply formed follower of Jesus. So just take note. Maybe you write these things down in a journal this week. I exaggerated things. I'm an exaggerator. I mean, you can ask, who was I talking to last week? Um... Jay, I was, tell, I was talking to Jay and Rosalina about the popcorn bags. And I mean, fun exaggeration is just a fun exaggeration. But I was like, the popcorn bags are this big. And he's like, really? I think they're like this big. You know, how, how do I exaggerate? When did I rationalize my bad behavior? When did I fail to follow through? And when I realize that I've spoken an untruth, I will confess and make amends. So friends, before we go, if you're sensing that the Holy Spirit is inviting you to something even deeper than just noticing your untruths, I want you to take stock of that and do what Jesus is asking of you. Don't do the next steps that I tell you to do. Do what Jesus is asking you to do. And, and to go even deeper, I want you to consider this practice that I call a discipleship band. Well, John Wesley called it a band. I stole it from a guy who lived in the, how, what, 1600s? Huh? 1700s. <laughs> Kevin's my history guy. Discipleship bands are, are circles of two or three or four people who meet every week, and they ask each other how they're growing, how you're struggling, How have you loved God this week? How have you failed to love God this week? And maybe you ask specific questions. How are you growing as a truth teller this week? Share, like, celebrate those victories. How have I struggled as a truth teller this week? This is one of the best practices that I've found to to develop a deeply formed faith, to become followers who don't merely listen to the word and so deceive ourselves, but do what it says.
God, you invite us. You invite us to be truth tellers. You're inviting us to a practice that goes so far against the grain that it's going to be really embarrassing. It's going to take some courage. So God, I ask this morning that you would help us to be strong and courageous in this thing that is not nearly as as big of a deal as like facing a giant or fighting a, a terrifying enemy, but yet it is. The father of lies, that's who we're contending with this week. So God, give courage to my friends, give courage to me to notice and to make amends for when we speak anything less, but the tr- less than the truth. That your kingdom would come and your will would be done here in Ipsy as it is in heaven. Amen.